Hello, welcome to the first episode of Tea with Dree. Today I'm going to be talking about slavery. Many Africans were brought to the United States on slave ships. People consider a significant starting point to slavery in the United States to be in 1619. This is when the privateer the White Lion brought 20 African slaves ashore in the British colony of Jamestown, Virginia. The crew had actually taken the Africans from the Portuguese slave ship Sao Jao Bautista. Yep, that's right, the poor Africans were taken to many countries. Throughout the 17th century, European settlers in North America turned to African slaves as a cheaper and easier labor source compared to indentured servants, who were mostly poor Europeans. Unfortunately, it is impossible to give accurate figures. However, some historians have estimated that 6 to 7 million enslaved Africans were imported to the New World during the 18th century alone which deprived Africa of some of its healthiest and ablest men and women. Their form of work. Originally, enslaved Africans worked mainly on the tobacco, rice, and indigo plantations of the southern coast, from the Chesapeake Bay colonies of Maryland and Virginia and down to Georgia. In the late 18th century, the land that was being used to grow tobacco was exhausted. This caused the South to face an economic crisis, which also meant the continued growth of slavery in America was in jeopardy. But around the same time, the mechanization of the textile industry in England led to a huge demand for American cotton, which was a southern crop whose production was limited by the difficulty of removing the seeds from raw cotton fibers by hand. But in 1793, Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin. The cotton gin efficiently removed the seeds. Within a few years, the South transitioned from the large-scale production of tobacco to the large-scale production of cotton. Unfortunately for the African slaves, this meant that United States was set and ready to keep slavery going. What happens next? Slavery was never a big thing in the North. Between 1774 In 1804, all of the northern states abolished slavery, but slavery remained vital to the South. Even though the United States Congress outlawed African slaves to be traded by another country in 1808, it was still legal to trade African slaves inside the United States. The enslaved population in the United States nearly tripled over the next 50 years. By 1860, it had reached nearly 4 million, with more than half living in the cotton-producing states of the South. Most slaves lived on either large plantations or small farms. Many masters owned fewer than 50 slaves. Slave owners created restrictive codes for their slaves. The slaves were usually prohibited from learning to read and write, and their behavior and movement was restricted as well. Many slave owners took sexual liberties with enslaved women and rewarded obedient behavior with favors, while rebellious slaves were brutally punished. There was a social class among the slaves. On the top of the social pyramid were the privileged houseworker slaves. Then came the skilled artisans, and on the bottom was the lowly field hand slaves. 
By keeping the slaves divided, it made it less likely for the slaves to organize against their masters. Marriages between enslaved men and women had no legal basis. However, many slaves did marry and even had kids. Most slave owners actually encouraged this because it meant more slaves for them. However, slave owners did not normally hesitate to divide families by sale or removal. Slave Rebellions After a while, some slaves got really tired and decided to rebel. Some people like Gabriel Prosser in Richmond in 1800 and Denmark Vissette in Charleston in 1822 tried to rebel but most were unsuccessful. The revolt that most terrified white slaveholders was the one led by Nat Turner in Southampton County, Virginia in August 1831. In Turner's group, around 75 black men murdered about 60 white people in two days before armed resistance from local white people and the arrival of state militia forces overwhelmed them. People that agreed with slavery used Turner's Rebellion as evidence that black people were inherently inferior barbarians and they needed slavery to discipline them. People feared that similar things would happen, which led to many southern states strengthening their slave codes in order to limit the education, movement, and assembly of enslaved people. Abolitionist movement. Since many people in the North were against slavery, this helped grow the abolitionist movement. From the 1830s to the 1860s, the movement to abolish slavery in America gained strength, led by free black people such as Frederick Douglass and white supporters such as William Lloyd Garrison, founder of the radical newspaper The Liberator, and Harriet Beecher Stowe, who published the best-selling anti-slavery novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Many abolitionists based their activism on the belief that slavery was a sin, and non-religious activists argued that slavery was regressive, inefficient, and made little economic sense. Free black people and other anti-slavery northerners started to help slaves escape from the south to the north by using a loose network of safe houses as early as the 1780s. This practice was known as the Underground Railroad. The Underground Railroad gained real momentum in the 1830s. Conductors like Harriet Tubman guided slaves on their journey north. Estimates vary widely, but the Underground Railroad is believed to have helped anywhere from 40,000 to 100,000 thousand slaves reach freedom. Fortunately, the success of the Underground Railroad helped spread abolitionist feelings in the North, but unfortunately it also increased sectional tensions between the North and the South, which made pro-slavery Southerners realize that the North may be a threat when it came to keeping slavery around. Missouri Compromise Eventually, America grew and expanded westward. This meant there would be more land for slave owners to use. This created a conflict about whether slavery should be allowed on the new land. The solution was that Missouri would be a slave state and Maine would be a free state. 
It also included that all western territories north of Missouri's southern border were to be free soil. Even though the Missouri Compromise was made to help balance the feud between slave states and free states, it became a temporary fix. Kansas-Nebraska Act In 1850, another tenuous compromise was negotiated to resolve the question of slavery in territories won during the Mexican-American War. Four years later, the Kansas-Nebraska Act opened all new territories to slavery by asserting the rule of popular sovereignty over congressional edict, leading pro- and anti-slavery forces to battle it out with considerable bloodshed in the new state of Kansas. Dred Scott Decision In 1857, the Dred Scott Decision happened. The Dred Scott decision was a case about an enslaved man who sued for his freedom on the grounds that his master had taken him into free territory, which went against the Missouri Compromise. The Supreme Court's ruling on March 6, 1857 was that having lived in a free state did not entitle a slave to their freedom because a slave was not considered a citizen. Therefore, a slave could not sue in a federal court. Two years after the Dred Scott decision, an event that would ignite passions nationwide over the issue of slavery took place. This event was John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry occurred in Virginia, where abolitionists and 22 men, including five black men and three of John Brown's sons, raided and occupied a federal arsenal. This resulted in 10 deaths and John Brown's hanging. This event exposed the growing national rift over slavery. Brown was hailed as a martyred hero by northern abolitionists, but was vilified as a mass murderer in the South. The Civil War The following year, the South reached its breaking point when a Republican candidate named Abraham Lincoln was elected president. Within three months, seven southern states had seceded to form the Confederate States of America, and four more seceded after the Civil War began. Even though Lincoln's anti-slavery views were well established, the Central Union War aimed at first was not to abolish slavery, but to preserve the United States as a nation. But later, abolition became a goal due to military necessity, growing anti-slavery sentiment in the North, and the self-emancipation of many people who fled enslavement as Union troops swept through the South. When did slavery end? On September 22, 1862, Lincoln issued a preliminary emancipation proclamation, and on January 1, 1863, he made it official that slaves within any state or designated part of a state in rebellion shall be then, thenceforward, and forever free. Lincoln freed about 3 million enslaved people in the rebel states, and the Emancipation Proclamation deprived the Confederacy of the bulk of its labor forces and put international public opinion strongly on the Union side. Even though the Emancipation Proclamation didn't officially end all slavery in America, 
Later, that happened when the 13th Amendment was made. The 13th Amendment was adopted on December 18, 1865. The amendment abolished slavery. However, freed African status in the post-war South remained precarious and significant changes awaited during the Reconstruction period. Previously, enslaved men and women received the rights of citizenship and the equal protection of the Constitution and the 14th Amendment and the right to vote in the 15th Amendment. But these provisions of Constitution were often ignored or violated, and it was difficult for black citizens to gain a foothold in the post-war economy thanks to restrictive black codes and regressive contractual arrangements such as sharecropping. Reconstruction was very frustrating for African Americans, and the rebirth of white supremacy included the rise of fascist organizations such as the Ku Klux Klan had triumphed in the South by 1877. Almost a century later, resistance to the lingering racism and discrimination in America that began during the slavery era would lead to the civil rights movement of the 1960s, which would achieve the greatest political and social gains for black Americans since Reconstruction. But I'll talk more about that in the next episode. Welcome to the second episode of Tea with Dree. Today, I'm going to be talking about the Civil Rights Movement. In the last episode, we left off with how the Reconstruction period didn't go very well for African Americans. During Reconstruction, black people took on leadership roles like never before. They held public office and sought legislative changes for equality and the right to vote. In 1868, the 14th Amendment to the Constitution gave black people equal protection under the law. In 1870, the 15th Amendment granted black Americans the right to vote. But of course, many white Americans, especially those in the South, were unhappy that people they'd once enslaved were now on a more or less equal playing field. Because of, the civil rights, because of this, the civil rights movement started. The civil rights movement was a struggle for social justice that took place mainly during the 1950s and 1960s for black Americans to gain equal rights under the law in the United States. The Civil War had officially abolished slavery, but it didn't end discrimination against black people. They continued to endure the devastating effects of racism, especially in the South. By the mid-20th century, black Americans had had more than enough of prejudice and violence against them. They, along with many white Americans, mobilized and began an unprecedented fight for equality that spanned two decades. Jim Crow Laws To marginalize black people and keep them separate from white people and erase the progress they'd made during Reconstruction, Jim Crow laws were established in the South beginning in the late 19th century. Black people couldn't use the same public facilities as white people, live in many of the same towns, or go to the same schools. 
Interracial marriage was illegal, and most black people couldn't vote because they were unable to pass voter literacy tests. Pretty ridiculous, if you ask me. Even though Jim Crow laws weren't adopted in northern states, black people still experienced discrimination at their jobs or when they tried to buy a house or get an education. To make matters worse, laws were passed in some states to limit voting rights for black Americans. Southern segregation gained ground in 1896 when the U.S. Supreme Court declared in Plessy v. Ferguson that facilities for black and white people could be separate but equal. I have no idea why that made sense to them. World War II Before World War II, most black people worked as low-wage farmers, factory workers, domestics, or servants. But by the early 1940s, war-related work was booming. But shocker, most black Americans weren't given the better-paying jobs. They were also discouraged from joining the military. I guess it would have looked bad if black people represented the U.S. After thousands of black people threatened to march on Washington to demand equal employment rights, President Franklin D. Roosevelt issued Executive Order 8802 on June 25, 1941. This opened national defense jobs and other government jobs to all Americans regardless of race. Despite suffering segregation during their employment, black men and women served heroically in World War II. The Tuskegee Airmen broke the racial barrier to become the first black military aviators in the U.S. Army Air Corps and earned more than 150 distinguished flying crosses. Yet, many black veterans met with prejudice and scorn upon returning home. This was a stark contrast to why America had entered the war to begin with, to defend freedom and democracy in the world. As the Cold War began, President Harry Truman initiated a civil rights agenda, and in 1948, he issued Executive Order 9981 to end discrimination in the military. These events helped set the stage for grassroots initiatives to enact racial equality legislation and incite the civil rights movement. Rosa Parks On December 1, 1955, a super cool woman named Rosa Parks found a seat on a Montgomery, Alabama bus after work. At the time, segregation laws required black passengers to sit in designated seats at the back of the bus, and Rosa Parks had followed this rule. But when a white man got on the bus and couldn't find a seat in the white section at the front of the bus, the bus driver instructed Rosa Parks and three other black passengers to give up their seats. Rosa Parks refused. You go, girl. Unfortunately, she was arrested. Word of her arrest ignited outrage and support. Rosa Parks unwittingly became the mother of the modern-day civil rights movement. Black community leaders formed the Montgomery Improvement Association, also known as the MIA, led by Baptist minister Martin Luther King Jr., a role which would place him front and center in the fight for civil rights. Rosa Parks' courage caused the MIA to stage a boycott of the Montgomery bus system, which meant that no black people would take the bus, even if it meant having to walk everywhere. That Montgomery bus boycott lasted 381 days. On November 14th, 
1956, the Supreme Court ruled segregated seating was unconstitutional. Who knew that not taking a bus would accomplish so much? Little Rock Nine. In 1954, the civil rights movement gained momentum when the United States Supreme Court made segregation illegal in public schools in the case of Brown versus the Board of Education. In 1957, a central high school in Little Rock, Arkansas, asked for volunteers from all black high schools to attend the formerly segregated school. On September 3, 1957, nine black students known as the Little Rock Nine arrived at Central High School to begin classes, but were instead met by the Arkansas National Guard on order of Governor Orville Faubus and a screaming, threatening mob. I mean, come on, they were kids. Anyways, the Little Rock Nine tried again a couple of weeks later and made it inside, but had to be removed for their safety when violence ensued. Finally, President Dwight D. Eisenhower intervened and ordered federal troops to escort the Little Rock Nine to and from classes at Central High. Still, the students faced continual harassment and prejudice. However, their efforts brought much-needed attention to the issue of desegregation and fueled protests on both sides of the issue. Civil Rights Act of 1957 even though all Americans had gained the right to vote, many southern states made it difficult for black citizens by requiring them to take literacy tests that were confusing, misleading, and nearly impossible to pass. And trust me, they really were nearly impossible because I tried taking one one time and I was so confused. Anyways, wanting to show a commitment to the civil rights movement and minimize racial tensions in the South, the Eisenhower administration pressured Congress to consider a new civil rights legislation. On September 9, 1957, President Eisenhower signed the Civil Rights Act of 1957 into law, the first major civil rights legislation since Reconstruction. It allowed federal prosecution of anyone who tried to prevent someone from voting. It also created a commission to investigate voter fraud. Victory! Woolworth's lunch counter. Despite making some gains, black Americans still experienced blatant prejudice in their daily lives. On February 1, 1960, four college students took a stand against segregation in Greensboro, North Carolina when they refused to leave a Woolworth's lunch counter without being served. Jeez, man, just give them a burger. Over the next several days, hundreds of people joined their cause in what became known as the Greensboro sit-ins. After some were arrested and charged with trespassing, protesters launched a boycott of all segregated lunch counters until the owners caved and the original four students were finally served at the Woolworths lunch counter where they first stood their ground. Their efforts started peaceful sit-ins and demonstrations in dozens of cities and helped launch the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known as the SNCC, to encourage all students to get involved in the civil rights movement. It also caught the eye of young college graduate Stokely Carmichael, who joined the SNCC during the Freedom Summer of 1964 to register black voters in Mississippi. In 1966, Carmichael became the chair of the SNCC 
giving his famous speech in which he originated the phrase black power. Freedom Riders. On May 4, 1961, 13 Freedom Riders, a group of seven black and six white activists mounted a Greyhound bus in Washington, D.C., embarking on a bus tour of the American South to protest segregated bus terminals. They were testing the 1960 decision by the Supreme Court in Boynton versus Virginia that declared the segregation of interstate transportation facilities unconstitutional. Facing violence from both police officers and white protesters, the Freedom Rides drew international attention. On Mother's Day 1961, the bus reached Anniston, Alabama, where a mob mounted the bus and threw a bomb into it. Thankfully, the Freedom Riders escaped the burning bus, but were badly beaten. Photos of the bus engulfed in flames were widely circulated, and the group could not find a bus driver to take them further. U.S. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, brother to President John F. Kennedy, negotiated with Alabama Governor John Patterson to find a suitable driver, and the Freedom Riders resumed their journey under police escort on May 20. But the officers left the group once they reached Montgomery, where a white mob brutally attacked the bus. Attorney General Kennedy responded to the riders, and a call from Martin Luther King Jr. by sending federal marshals to Montgomery. On May 24, 1961, a group of Freedom Riders reached Jackson, Mississippi. Though met with hundreds of supporters, the group was arrested for trespassing in a whites-only facility and sentenced to 30 days in jail. Attorneys for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, also known as the NAACP, brought the matter to the U.S. Supreme Court, who reversed the convictions. Hundreds of new Freedom Riders were drawn to the cause, and the rides continued. In the fall of 1961, under pressure from the Kennedy administration, the Interstate Commerce Commission issued regulations prohibiting segregation in interstate transmit terminals. March on Washington Arguably one of the most famous events of the civil rights movement took place on August 28, 1963, the March on Washington. It was organized and attended by civil rights leaders such as A. Philip Randolph, Bayard Rustin, and Martin Luther King Jr. More than 200,000 people of all races congregated in Washington, D.C. for the peaceful march with the main purpose of forcing civil rights legislation and establishing job equality for everyone. The highlight of the march was King's speech in which he continually stated, I have a dream. King's I Have a Dream speech quickly became a slogan for equality and freedom. One time in the fourth grade, I got to read it and I felt pretty cool. Civil Rights Act of 1964 President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 legislation which was initiated by President John F. Kennedy before his assassination into law on July 2nd of that year. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and many other civil rights activists witnessed the signing. The law guaranteed equal employment for all and limited the use of voter literacy tests and allowed federal authorities to ensure public facilities were integrated.
Bloody Sunday. On March 7, 1965, the civil rights movement in Alabama took an especially violent turn as 600 peaceful demonstrators participated in the Selma to Montgomery March to protest the killing of black civil rights activist Jimmy Lee Jackson by a white police officer and to encourage legislation to enforce the 15th Amendment. As the protesters neared the Edmund Pettus Bridge, they were blocked by Alabama state and local police sent by Alabama Governor George C. Wallace, a vocal opponent of desegregation. Refusing to stand down, protesters moved forward and were viciously beaten and tear gassed by police and dozens of protesters were hospitalized. The entire incident was televised and became known as Bloody Sunday. Some activists wanted to retaliate with violence, but King pushed for nonviolent protests and eventually gained federal protection for another march. Voting Rights Act of 1965 When President Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act into law on August 6, 1965, he took the Civil Rights Act of 1964 several steps further. The new law banned all voter literacy tests and provided federal examiners in certain voting jurisdictions. It also allowed the Attorney General to contest state and local poll taxes. As a result, poll taxes were later declared unconstitutional in Harper v. Virginia State Board of Elections in 1966. Civil Rights Leaders Assassinated The Civil Rights Movement had tragic consequences for two of its leaders in the late 1960s. On February 22, 1965, former Nation of Islam leader and Organization of Afro-American Unity founder Malcolm X was assassinated at a rally. On April 4, 1968, civil rights leader and Nobel Peace Prize recipient Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated on his hotel room's balcony. Emotionally charged, looting and riots followed, putting even more pressure on the Johnson administration to push through additional civil rights laws. Fair Housing Act of 1968 The Fair Housing Act became a law on April 11, 1968, just days after King's assassination. It prevented housing discrimination based on race, sex, national origin, and religion. It was also the last legislation enacted during the Civil Rights era. The Civil Rights Movement was an empowering yet precarious time for black Americans. The efforts of civil rights activists and countless protesters of all races brought about legislation to end segregation, black voter suppression, and discriminatory employment and housing practices. So basically, black people had it pretty rough in America. Things are better now, but definitely not perfect. And that's all for today on Tea with Dream.